This podcast is sponsored by Picmonic. In 2011, two medical students came up with the ingenious idea to combine medical education with unforgettable characters and ridiculously memorable stories. Featuring over 35,000 high-yield facts and graphics, Picmonic has helped over 600,000 students improve exam scores and perform better clinically. Picmonic has resources for pre-med and medical students, as well as other healthcare professions. Check out the show notes for a link to their website. Mention the podcast when you subscribe. With Picmonic, you can study less, but remember more. Hello, I'm Stephen, host of the Black Doctors Podcast, here to talk about Clove. Clove is a sneaker specifically designed to meet the needs of healthcare professionals. I have a pair and I love how comfortable these shoes are, especially since I'm on my feet all day as an anesthesiologist. These shoes are perfect for the operating room because they are extra grippy and super easy to wipe clean at the end of the day. Purchase any pair of Clove shoes and compression socks at checkout. Use the code BDPXCLOVE to get your socks for free. A $22 discount just by listening to the show. The Black Doctors Podcast highlights the stories of minority professionals with the goal of inspiring others. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and share with others because the next generation can't be what they don't see. Tune in every Monday to hear our stories told by us. Hello and welcome back to Black Doctors Podcast. I'm Stephen, your host. So excited to be speaking with Dr. James Carson. He is a graduate of the University of Michigan. Go Blue. Thanks what y'all say. Go Blue. He then went on to Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, where he completed a master's in public health at the Bloomberg School of Public Health, while also earning his doctorate of medicine. Dr. Carson went on to complete an orthopedic surgery residency at the Howard University Hospital. That's where our paths crossed. (laughs) You know. And then our paths crossed again. He followed me to Chicago, where he did fellowship in uh, adult reconstruction, a.k.a. joint replacement. And he's currently practicing in Texas. That's a mouthful. Dr. Carson, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to the show. Uh, the first question everybody wants to know, gifted hands, Dr. Dr. Uh, Carson, Detroit, Michigan, is there any relation? Yes, there is, but it's not a close relation. <clears throat> we are distant cousins. Um, you ever met but... uh, Dr. Ben Carson? I met him multiple times. Uh, first met him when I was young in Battle Creek because he was uh, on the board of directors of Kellogg's, which is headquartered in Battle Creek. Additionally, he's Seventh-day Adventist. The religion started in Battle Creek, so he always had a lot of business in Battle Creek and would do talks while he was here. So I met him when I was young. And then in medical school, um, I first went to his house when I was in college and I attended the Welcome Back Weekend put on by the Student National Medical Association at Hopkins, where he every year hosted students uh, for a brunch. So I went to his house back then and then multiple times over the years. But additionally, I went to um, college with one of his nephews who I'm cool with. So, you know, I've been to his house hanging out with him before. Man, yeah, long relationship. How often do you get that question? Oh, uh, every time I meet somebody. New. <laughs> yeah, <clears throat> I get that question actually a lot here in uh, Texas. Um, they say, "Oh, are you uh, related to Doctor Ben Carson?" Oh, I love him. I would have voted for him 
that's you know that code yeah. word for I'm a yeah. Republican. But yeah, sounds like sounds like Texas. Yeah. Uh, we, we we digress. Um, so so we talked about this earlier. A lot of, of people were influenced by that book, Gifted Hands, and led them, inspired them to go into medicine. But your passion and desire for medicine came before that, before you could even read. When when did you first decide or get interested in, in healthcare? So when I was uh, about two years old, I made the decision I wanted to be a doctor. And I came to that conclusion after being hospitalized. I was just uh, I was a, a precocious child, to say the least. And this is when the water coolers put out both cold water and hot water, if you requested. Mm, mm-hmm. So my parents, myself and my older brother, we were at the car repair shop getting our, I don't remember what vehicle, I think it was a van, fixed. And my parents multiple times told us to stay away from it and leave it alone. For two seconds. <laughs> the uh, mechanic said, hey, will you guys come in here and take a look at this? I want to show you something that, you know, I'm repairing or had to repair or whatever. As soon as they left, I raced to the water cooler. Oh, man. Filled up a cup of hot water and spilled it on my arm. And, you know, my uh, so my mom took me to the hospital. My dad took my older brother home. Uh, they just kept me overnight pretty much for observation. And to watch the burn to let it declare itself. And while I was in the hospital, I told my mom that I wanted to be a doctor. Man, how old were you? Uh, I think I was two. Oh man, some some people are gonna say they're gonna call cap on that story, but we'll take your word for it. And since then, you you stuck with it. Um, so through high school and and I have photo evidence. Photo evidence. Okay. <laughs> Basically, a, a picture of me sitting there at the hospital with my Mr. T doll and my arm wrapped up. But that was basically the first time I expressed an interest in it. All right. There, that settles it. Um, what did you study in college? Because you, you obviously, you know, stuck with the dream and the goal to get into medical school. Um, so what was your undergrad? Uh, my undergrad degree was in biochemistry. Um I knew I wanted to go to medical school. I actually came in planning to major in chemistry. But then freshman year, I looked at what subjects were in the MCAT, and I said, oh, I think biochem will serve me better. So I decided to do biochemistry. And of note, I won the freshman chemistry award while at University of Michigan, the first black person to ever do it. Congratulations. This was, uh, and this, you'd already decided to go into orthopedic surgery or you weren't sure what you wanted to specialize in? Oh, <clears throat> uh, no. <clears throat> I decided on orthopedics back in high school. I, I, I was an athlete, year round athlete. Football, wrestling, and tennis were my high school sports, but I knew I didn't want to be a professional. So I went on, um, whatever web search was popular at the time. This was before Google. I think it was like Ask Jeeves or Alta Vista or something like that, and said, what kind of doctor takes care of sports teams? And they said, orthopedic surgeon. Hmm. And at that time, my dream job was being a team doctor for the Detroit Lions. I decided, I think I was maybe 16 or so at the time. Then uh, over the next, the next year, I ended up having to have surgery by an orthopedic surgeon. I broke my knuckle playing football. I got it fixed a little while later. Then my senior year, 
I was in this class that allowed me to shadow a surgeon, like as part of my school curriculum. So I went to see my surgeon who had operated on my hand and asked if I could shadow him. So I spent like two days a week shadowing him for a semester in high school. Yeah, so it's very interesting. I mean, epitome of a student athlete. You're, what, six foot something, 200 something pounds? Six three now. Six three. Um, so along the path, did you kind of run into roadblocks or obstacles where people were confused that you wanted to go into to medicine versus sports? Or did, it, was, did it ever come up for you? <laughs> it still comes up to this day. <laughs> where people say, oh, man, I think you missed your call or you could have been a football player. I said I could have been, but then you wouldn't have had to have you wouldn't have had the pleasure of me replacing your knee. Boom. But uh, I mean, in college, they always thought I was an athlete. I was actually in the honors college, um, and I want to say my junior or senior year, they built this thing called the honors commons, which was like technically an area that anybody could be in, but it's mostly only honors students. So one day I went in there and. Some uh, non-melanated student <laughs> commented to me, um, you know, athletes have their own uh, space at the university. This is for honor students. And everything I wanted, everything in me wanted to come upside of her head with a retort that would make her look and feel stupid. but. I just chose to keep on walking and keep it moving. But every, I mean, all the time on campus at Michigan, if you were my size or so, they thought you were a basketball player or a football player because um, the assumption was that that's what the most, most of the black students are. Then fast forward to medical school. Mm. I, uh, on my surgery rotation, interestingly enough, I knew I wanted to be a surgeon, but my most hated rotation was surgery um, as a medical student because the uh, the uh, clerkship director and his assistant both, um, in my opinion, were bigots. But an uh, uh, Asian guy, uh, Caucasian woman, Asian guy was uh, he's a cardiothoracic surgeon and the uh, fellowship uh, clerk clerkship director. But uh, both of them on separate occasions, said to me, I don't know why you're in medical school. You should have been a football player. Wow. And, you know, I don't know if people say that thinking that it's a compliment, but, you know, I, I always found it to be very disrespectful. So, um, in turn, I the the disrespect I received, I also returned to them. Problem was they had the ability to give me my grades. So despite killing it on the rotation, they gave me a pass mm. instead of like a high pass or honors. But I I am here where I am now. So um, I'm not going to mention any names, but I would love to give him a huge salute. But I digress. We'll, we'll see if they're, I don't know if they're fans of the, of the podcast, uh, considering their <laughs> social leanings. They should be. They should be. Um, anybody who's anybody should be a fan of the podcast. <laughs> Especially now. So, so tell me, James, you um, did an MPH while you were at Hopkins. Why did you uh, decide yes. to, to get that degree? 
So back in college, I knew that I wanted to do a dual degree. So I was thinking like maybe MD, PhD. But then I want to say summer after my junior year, maybe sophomore year, because like no junior year, the first two summers, I did like clinical clerkships and clinical research, which I loved clinical research. But after my junior year, I spent the summer in a lab. Like really, I just needed a job uh, for part of the summer because the other part I was a a student leader for this um, summer program through the medical school. But anyway, I got a job as a lab assistant, and then the lab director's like, "Wait, uh, you know, my job was cleaning up after the PCRs and you know all of this stuff, but." <laughs> the, the the PI of the lab was like, wait, you are way too smart to be doing this. Um, I'm going to make you a, I forgot the title that I had, but essentially I was just in the lab running, you know, helping the, him to run his experiments and whatnot. The work I was doing was interesting, but I hated being in a lab because most of the people in the lab made their own hours. And I was all about getting in and getting out. So I went in early so I could leave early. But I would spend hours by myself in a lab, pipetting and, you know, running PCRs and stuff. The work was interesting, but I did not enjoy that environment yeah. just being by myself. I'm like, you know, I'm a people person. I'm not a, 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 a at-the-bench type of scientist. So... Um, at that point in time, I was like, no, a PhD is not for me. Now, granted, had I known about, like, say, a DRPH, I, I probably would have considered it. But either way, I was like, okay, I know I'm, I don't want to do an MD-PhD, but I do want to do a dual degree. So I was just looking into different options and things that I felt like would further my desires and things I cared about. So that's how I landed on an MPH. So I only applied to medical schools that offered um, uh, MPH as well. Or you know, technically Hopkins didn't offer one and they didn't have a dual degree program like they do now. Back then, I just had to apply to the School of Public Health. When I got in, I took a one-year leave of absence from mm -hmm. medical school, did my MPH, and then came back. Now it's all one program. Uh, but still, I only applied to schools that offered something like that. And specifically in my MPH, I did a certificate in health disparities, and I did a certificate in health finance and management. Uh, also, it was like two classes away from a certificate in health policy, but I was just like, I'm not about to kill myself <laughs> to get this certificate one. Uh I've gotten most of the classes and I have a good understanding. And I was, uh, had this interest in policy uh, going further back into undergrad because I was in uh, the uh, honors college. I did a uh, honors concentration that I designed myself <laughs> that was a mix of uh, political science and African-American studies. So understanding the intersection of being black in America with the law in America. Yeah, we'll have to dig into that in a little bit. So you went from University of Michigan to Johns Hopkins, 
And then for residency, you came to the Mecca Howard University. Talk about your experiences in residency. What did it mean to train at a uh, historically black university or, or hospital affiliated with one? Uh, it was it was everything. It was the best, one of the best things I think that ever could have happened to me. For one, I received excellent training, like excellent training. When I got into fellowship, I my, my fellowship director is like, wow, most people don't come in with as much surgical experience as you, which meant I, I got a lot more autonomy from literally from day one of my fellowship than most people. So for one, it was the most excellent training. For two, like I literally got to train in the same halls and even for a small amount of time directly under some of the legends in medicine, you know, from one of the founders of my fraternity who, you know, spent time and worked at Howard to Dr. Charles Drew to Dr. Callender, who mm. I rotated under while I was there to just all the names. I mean, uh, it was it was just a great experience, uh, I got to say. Um training under people who look like me, taking care of people who look like me. You know, it was it was different. Yeah. <laughs> it was it was my first HBCU experience, but I wouldn't give it up for the world. Yeah. During your time there, I even learned from you, you gave a surgical grand round on uh compartment syndrome. I was a medical student. Oh yeah. I, I don't think I could tell that you weren't a huge fan of general surgery. <laughs> <laughs> Goodness. So let's talk about your practice now, because you left residency. Um, talk a little bit about fellowship and then how that shaped your practice. <clears throat> All right. So my fellowship was in adult reconstruction, a.k.a. joint replacement. I ended up uh, matching at the University of Chicago, which in the year of our Lord, 2016, I was the first ever black fellow Oof. within that fellowship you know uh but it was it was a great experience also because my uh my fellowship director literally specialized in what we call disaster plasties like some of the worst of the worst joint replacement revisions and that type of stuff but it you know turned out to be great because now in my practice I do things that most surgeons wouldn't touch. Um, and it keeps me busy, keeps referrals. Plus, uh, you know, it's sometimes it's fun to do, to take people who surgeons said, uh, there's nothing that can be done. And then show them that there is something that can be done. But um, Chicago was great. I ran into this, uh, young wiry fellow that I had known as a medical student um, <laughs> and he grew up a little bit <laughs> and we hung out you know that was my guy but uh another thing is Chicago is close to home so yeah I, in that one year I went home probably more than I went all of residency but uh you know it was, it was a good experience just great hands-on stuff and then so now in my professional practice, my main focus is joint replacement, um, whether it be primary or revision, but hips and knees specifically. 
now as I am, uh, I've been working, I got hired fresh out of training by HCA and I've been working with them for just over four years now. But as of February 1, I am, uh, you know, I'm working with Next Generation Orthopedics and Spine Institute. And this is a practice actually started by uh, a good friend of mine and also a uh, graduate of Howard University School of Medicine. Okay. Um, who, his name is Anthony Owusu. He's a spine surgeon. So it'll be him and I. He do spine, I do joints, plus a little bit of everything else, and we make magic happen. <laughs> Love to hear it. Where is uh, this practice located? Next Generation Ortho Spine Institute. Where are you guys at? So office in Humble, Texas, which is just a north northern slash northwestern suburb, northeastern suburb of uh, Houston, and also uh, in the North Houston slash Woodlands area, which is north, yeah, directly you, north of the city. When you get over there, tell Doctor Abusu uh, the, the sponsor of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, so as part of your practice, right, you're doing these uh, arthroplasties. What is the most revisions that you've done on a patient? Like a second time, third time revision? What, what's your record? I had one guy who I did his 20th revision. No. Well, not his 20th revision, but his 20th hip surgery. Jeez. I'm just, both hips. No, no, all on one hip. Wow. And yeah, so what did, I mean, if you can know the specifics, I guess, but what, what was so, that? I mean, it was just a guy who was a not very healthy guy who got a hip replacement that I think he initially fractured. So they revived it. It got infected. Mm. And there's just a whole series of take everything out, treat the infection, put stuff back in do a, a washout or something, et cetera, et cetera, but just a chronically infected person. Gotcha. And when it comes to your practice, you know, how many of your patients are scheduling elective cases versus how much does fractures and trauma kind of come into play? So for me, it's about maybe 50-50, oh, planted just a little bit towards, more towards elective, but that's because I take, 14 to 15 days of call a month at two different level two trauma centers. So I do a bunch of complex trauma as well. 14 to 15 calls a month. But, uh, yep. But I still lean more towards electives. Now at the beginning, trauma was heavy, but you know, I've been in my current community for three years I've built a name for myself. My mm. referrals are solid. So now, you know, despite how much call I take, it's still mostly elective surgeries I do. So, so let's dig into that. Four years at HCA, which is a large hospital system. So when you got your contract, I assume you were salaried and then the call gives you extra money or, or how does that work? So in general, when you're employed by a large uh, provider like them, you sign on with a typical guarantee so they guarantee for whatever amount of time you agree to one anywhere between one and two years 
that you'll get paid at least a certain amount per year. So essentially salary, but you do have a bonus structure. So if you generate so many RVUs above a certain threshold, then you get paid extra based on the uh, RVU conversion that you, uh, that you negotiate. But I, uh, so I've been off of my guarantee for a while now. And when you're off of your guarantee, <clears throat> they typically pay you the same base rate, but 100% of the actual money you get to keep is based on your production. So I'm 100% production, meaning, you know, if they gave me the check for my base rate and I generated zero RVUs, I would owe them all of that money back. Oh. But uh, when they give me that check and I generate over a certain threshold of RVUs, then they owe me extra money. And pretty much every quarter except one, they've owed me extra money. Wow. So what is leading, what are some of the reasons that you're looking uh, to start with this new practice or move to a, a different practice, whether next generation ortho spine institute what what's driving this change i mean i'm no don't uh don't take this as a knock towards hca per se but mo uh healthcare is a business and most of these large employers you know they have stockholders to answer to so they uh you know it's all about the money which you know, something that you know going in. But at the same time, when you work for one of them, you lack autonomy. You know, kind of what they say goes. You see as many patients as they say you need to see, et cetera, et cetera. They also limit any outside investments that you can make. Hmm. You know, I can't invest in a surgery center that they don't own. Otherwise, you know, I'm competing against them. I can't do certain consulting agreements, or if I do, they get to keep a chunk of the money. Oh, no. <laughs> Even if I'm doing, like, personal injury where, you know, some lawyer gets the patient $500,000, and that some of that extra money goes to the hospital. It doesn't come to me. It goes to the hospital. I'm not in medicine to make a bunch of money, but... I, I will say that you learn the business of medicine once you get into practice. Yeah, They don't teach the business of medicine in medical school. They don't. You know, I learned a little bit about it in residency. But once you get into practice, you learn quickly. Yeah. And another thing you learn is contract negotiation, usually after. Yeah, after you got a contract. You know, <laughs> yep. <laughs> That's dope. So excited. Obviously, you got to be very excited to be starting this new group. Uh, you mentioned mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Owusu is doing spine. You're doing joints. Are you bringing anything new um, in regards to your practice? Just uh, just expanding on my current offerings, you know, doing, for instance, like most of the time I do posterior hips, but you know, I'm board certified now, plus I have a lot of experience in my training doing anterior hips, although I don't feel like there's a different outcomes. Some patients desire the newer techniques, 
What's the difference? What's the difference between uh, anterior and posterior hips? It's basically just the approach. It's as if you if you approach the hip from the front of the joint or the back of the joint. That's about it. Um, but anterior hips are what are called considered muscle sparing because you go in between muscles instead of having to cut through a muscle hmm. to access the joint. Well, per- personally, my preference is uh, anterior hips because the patient's laying supine. You don't kind of lay them sideways. So, uh, you know, but nobody cares what anesthesia, anesthesia thinks. <laughs> anesthesia, I, I have a, a great relationship with my anesthesia providers. Unless they make my cases late because they didn't <laughs> see the patient early enough. But still, they're great. I love my anesthesia. That's dope. I had a, I had a patient one time that, you know, I tried to convince needed to just go to surgery. And they were like, you know what? No, we'll wait till, mo- till tomorrow. Because he had eaten a sandwich like six hours earlier. Yeah. So he wasn't eight hours MPO, and I'm like, come on, let's go. So just a little simple surgery taking 15 minutes. Patient was downstairs and everything when they found out he had eaten, so they took him back upstairs. And then I want to say 30 minutes after he got upstairs, he died. Oh, man. He would have died on my table had uh, had they let me proceed with that surgery. Oof. Yeah, see, there you go, man. Anesthesia is looking out always. They I Most of the time, most of the time. Shoot. So tell us again, you said um, you're, you're going to this new practice. When are you going to start taking patients? They're going to come see you at one of these two offices. Uh, let the folks know where they can find you. My Humble, I have an office, two offices. One of them is in Humble, Texas. For those non-Texans, you might pronounce it Humble because that's, that's how it's spelled. <laughs> but in Texas, it's pronounced Humble. Uh, it's a... Uh, at Thompson Boulevard and FM 1960 at Thompson Memorial Hospital in their medical office buildings. My other office is basically our sort of brick and, brick and mortar office that uh, is owned by the practice. The real estate is owned by the practice, and that's uh, that's in, uh, in the woodlands, just like South Woodlands, North Houston, off of 45 and Rayford Road. I don't have my uh, card on me <laughs> with the phone number, <laughs> so I can't give you that info right now, unfortunately. But uh, Google us, Next Generation Orthopedic and Spine Institute. Yeah, we'll get the uh, links. Yeah, definitely will. I've actually already begun scheduling patients. Uh, I actually have patients already on my surgical schedule for when I start, so... February 1 is is go live day, and that's one of my surgical days. So Oof. I'm doing about three joint replacements on February 1. So February 2 is the first day I'll be seeing patients in the office. And at this point, my first day in, this, in the office is already completely booked, but um, I'm sure the next few days are not booked up yet. All right. We'll definitely go out and support Dr. Carson and his new endeavor James, thanks for coming on the show. As we start to wrap up, talk to us about orthopedic surgery because the field's not very diverse still. What would you say to those pre-med or medical students that are sitting there thinking, you know, I'm never going to be able to make it. I don't have the board scores. It's super competitive. What would you say to those folks out there? Uh, Number one, study, study, study. 
step one is now pass fail. So that's going to make step two that most much more important. But just as important as uh, mentors, you got to reach out, get mentors. I mean, I, I have so many people from literally from high school through residency and even early attendings who I mentor uh, formally or informally. You know, we talk, we chat, we stay up. So bone underscore doctor on Instagram, a bunch of my mentees. That's how we started a DM saying, hey, I'm interested in this or that, whatever, whatever. You know, I'm always willing to help out in any way I can. And even if I can directly help you, because I mentor a lot of people in medicine, not just ortho, but I can at least point you in the right direction. All of my friends in medicine and even outside of medicine, now you have, you know, a young minority or even, you know, I'm willing to mentor really anybody who's seeking mentorship. A young person who's interested in orthopedic surgery, they already know that they can send them my way. So mentorship is important. Seek out a mentor, get guidance. That's important. Um, There was a statistic that showed that African-Americans make up 1.5% of all orthopedic surgeons in the United States. So, you know, I'm... It's not a representative field, and out of most fields in medicine, orthopedic surgery is still uh, lagging behind. So, you know, it's one of my personal goals to to increase our ranks. Love it. Well, thank you so much for coming on the Black Doctors Podcast. Enjoyed hearing your story. Um, representation matters for so many reasons, as you just mentioned. Um, and folks, be sure to reach out to Dr. Carson. We'll drop the links in the show notes where you can find his new office um, and even the phone number to get in touch with him. Thanks for coming on the Black Doctors Podcast. All right. Thank you for having me. The Black Doctors Podcast is a nonprofit volunteer passion project with the goal of inspiring all who listen. If you enjoy listening, tell a friend about the show or share a link on social media. We are a small team and can use all the help we can get. You can reach us at the Black Doctors Podcast on Instagram or at Stephen Bradley MD on Twitter or Instagram. Tune in next week for another episode of the Black Doctors Podcast because representation matters.